You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Hi, I'm Chiara, and this is the new podcast series of The Maastricht Diplomat called Fructocracy. There are various different forms of government in the world. There's democracy, aristocracy, technocracy, and crooktocracy. Crooktocracy is the government of the crooks, of thieves, of corrupted representatives pursuing their own interests and using public money for personal gain. Maybe your country was a crooktocracy in the past and now, hopefully, it has a better government. Or maybe it is a crooktocracy right now, but you still don't know it. This series is about the biggest corruption scandals in the world and how they have shed a light on those crooktocracies, changing those countries, their future and their image forever. This first episode is about the crooktocracy I know best, Italy. It's the story of Italy's biggest corruption scandal, called Clean Hands, that put an end to the so-called First Republic and gave rise to the seemingly unending political career of Silvio Berlusconi. In the next episode, we will fly all over the Atlantic and deal with a much more recent scandal, Operation Car Wash in Brazil. But now, let's look into Italy. This series of investigation is known not only as Mani Pulite, clean hands, but also as Tangentopoli, which comes from the Italian word for kickback, tangente, and could be translated as Bribesville or kickback city. The term was originally coined to describe Milan, the first epicenter of the scandal, but soon became a synonym for the whole corruption scandal. The system, in general, was simple. The state would open calls for private firms to build public facilities such as roads, highways, power plants, hospitals, and so on. Companies would agree in advance on who would win which contract, today it's me, tomorrow it's you, and the winning firm would pay a bribe to the politician who worked for these entities contracting the work. Simply put, kickbacks were large sums of money that became a sort of tax enterprises had to pay to political parties to win public contracts, which the parties then used to finance themselves. To give an idea of the entity of the scandal, between 1992 and 1996, on average 2,000 people were investigated for corruption, bribery, abuse of office for personal gain, and other related crimes. 3,500 billion liras, approximately 3 trillion euros, in kickbacks were paid to mayors, policemen, tax officers, executives, and one in three members of the parliament. Figures never reached before and never reached again. Now let's get into it. How it all began. Mario Chiesa was a leading member of the Milanese section of the Italian Socialist Party. He was the administrator of a nursing home in Milan. He was caught red-handed while pocketing a bribe on Monday, February 17, 1992. As soon as Chiesa stowed the money in a desk drawer, the police burst into the room and notified his arrest. Chiesa, at that point, grabbed another bribe of 37 million liras that he had in another drawer and fled to the bathroom where he tried in vain to get rid of the bills by flushing them down the toilet. The scandal broke at a very inconvenient time. In the spring to come, national elections were to be held, 
with the newspaper and the TV talking about nothing else, the National Secretary of the Socialist Party, Bettino Craxi, declared in an interview that Mario Chiesa was just a bad apple and denied that this was how the whole party operated. In jail, Mario Chiesa did not like those declarations and began to talk, triggering the domino effect. He declared that all politicians in Milan, no matter their political party, were corrupt. He implicated Craxi and the Socialist Party as a whole, and soon other investigated politicians and businessmen started to do the same. In general, the tendency of leaders to distance themselves only boosted confessions. As soon as low-ranking local politicians felt like their superiors were about to ditch them, they confessed. All this made clear that all these corruption cases were part of a general system in Italian politics. They weren't the exception, but the norm. The scandal broke out in Milan, but soon got to Rome, and to the high-ranking politicians of the Pentapartito, the coalition formed by five parties that had governed for the last 10 years. Manipulite heavily influenced the elections of 1992. Abstentionism and general indifference towards the existing political parties skyrocketed, and the only parties that did not lose votes were two newly formed parties that asked for a renewal of the ruling class. One of them was the Lega Nord, which is currently called just Lega, and is in the governing coalition of the Maloney government. Their slogan, Roma ladrona, la Lega non perdona, roughly, Rome big thief, the League will not forgive, became iconic. Especially because in the following years, when the Lega Nord would become more powerful, it would also be implicated in corruption scandals due to illicit party financing, the same crime they had condemned the old parties for. The newly formed government was composed of a coalition of the four main parties, the Christian Democrats, the Socialists, the Social Democrats, and the Liberals. Their majority was from the start fragile and progressively weakened as the investigation continued. Only a few months after he had denied all allegations, on July 3, 1992, Craxi held a speech in Parliament where he confirmed the illegal financing of all parties in Italy. This way, he hoped that the problem would be treated as a political rather than a judicial one, and consequently not to be solved by trials. Unfortunately for him, this strategy would not work. Now, let's look at one of the most important cases of Manipulite the Anemond kickback. The most famous and important trial is the Anemond kickback. Sergio Cusani, one of the major shareholders of the private energy company Monte Edison, was accused of having organized a kickback to create a joint venture between his company and Eni, the state-owned energy company. The new company would have been called Anemond, from here the name of the trial. Cusani, in particular, put in contact the president of Mont Edison, Raul Gardini, the president of Eni, Gabriele Cagliari, and very high-ranking politicians such as Bettino Craxi himself. On April 20, 1993, after more than four months of pre-trial detention and 14 interrogations, Gabriele Cagliari committed suicide in the bathroom of his cell. Three days later, Raul Gardini shot himself, 
after having learned from his lawyer that he was about to be implicated in the Anemont bribe. Their deaths are two of the most famous suicides committed during the so-called season of suicides. 41 politicians and entrepreneurs committed suicide because they were somehow implicated in Manipulite. Bettino Craxi's prosecution was more complicated. In March 1993, the government passed the so-called Conso Decree. It was a legislative decree that decriminalized the past illicit party financing, which would have rendered the whole Manipulite insignificant and saved many politicians, including Craxi. The prosecutors launched the alarm on national television. Newspapers cried scandal and public opinion was simply furious. Consequently, for the first time in Italian history, the president of the republic refused to sign a legislative decree and the Conso decree was never adopted. At this point, since Craxi was enjoying parliamentary immunity, the parliament had to vote to permit the prosecutors to investigate him. On April 29, 1993, the parliament voted against it, not granting permission and saving Craxi from the major accusations. The backlash was enormous. The next day, the left-wing parties organized protests in Rome, students occupied universities, and in the evening, a huge crowd gathered in front of Hotel Raphael in Rome, where Craxi was staying. He still had to give an interview on TV, but ignored the advice to exit from the back. When he came out, the crowd started throwing coins at him, shouting, Bettino, do you want these too? Bettino, Bettino, jail is getting closer. And you are done. During the Enemont trial, as a result of his own testimony, more and more evidence emerged against Craxi. With the end of the legislature, the prospect of his arrest grew closer and closer. On April 15, 1994, with the start of the new legislature in which he had not been re-elected, his immunity from arrest was waived. On May 12, 1994, his passport was withdrawn due to the danger of flight, but it was already too late because Craxi was already in Tunisia. Craxi would live as a fugitive in Tunisia until his death in January 19, 2000. So now that we know what happened, let's look at the consequences of Manipulite. From the very beginning, public opinion sided with the prosecutors. Italians knew that their representatives were insane, but they also did not expect the whole system to be this corrupt. Di Pietro, the star prosecutor, and his colleagues started to be seen as heroes and spontaneous committees in their support started flourishing throughout Italy. The direct consequence was for involved politicians to start undermining the credibility of the prosecutors. Craxi declared, not all that glitters is gold. We will soon find out that Di Pietro is anything but the hero we hear about. There are many, too many unclear aspects about Manipulite. Silvio Berlusconi advised journalists working for him to shoot the pool point-blank and dig up as much dirt as possible on them. An Italian terrorist organization, Falange Armata, even threatened to kill the prosecutors and kidnap Di Pietro's son. 
Mani Pulite is considered to be the cause for the end of the so-called First Republic. That's how big the shock was for Italian society. There was a great request for renewal, a feeling that the foundations of the Republic needed to be rebuilt from scratch by new, reliable, honest people. As I said before, some parties managed to intercept this cry for change, such as the Liga Nord. But there was one man who managed to exploit these sentiments in his favor more than anyone. And that is Silvio Berlusconi. Berlusconi was actually really close to Bettino Craxi. Indeed, he was with him that night at the Hotel Raphael. Craxi was even Berlusconi's best man for his first marriage. Their friendship was mainly linked to Craxi saving Berlusconi's media empire in 1984 with a law that will be known as the Berlusconi Decree, for obvious reasons. Due to their close relationship, the prosecutors of clean hands were keeping an eye on his enterprises, looking out for any illicit party funding to Craxi. When the elections approached, Berlusconi feared that the new center-left alliance was going to win and eliminate the Berlusconi decree, putting him in big financial troubles due to his massive debts, or even worse, the prosecutors might find some dirt on him since he was no longer protected by Craxi. Berlusconi's strategy at this point was to use his popularity to create a new party, Forza Italia. Fun fact, he even wrote the lyrics of the hymn of the party. And on January 26th, 1994, Italians saw in the news a short spot beginning like this. Italy is the country I love. Here I have my roots, my hopes, my horizons. Here I learned from my father and from life my trade as an entrepreneur. Here I learned my passion for freedom. I chose to take the field and take care of public affairs because I do not want to live in an illiberal country, governed by immature forces and men who are in an absolute way linked to a politically and economically unsuccessful past. On March 27, 28, 1994, Italians voted, and the First Republic officially ended. None of the secretaries of the old Pentapartito were re-elected. Forza Italia, the new party founded just a few months ago, got 24.3% of the votes. But Berlusconi's strategy of running with two distinct coalitions, one in the north and one in the south, secured him 60% of the votes in the single-member voting constituencies. Not surprisingly, Berlusconi became president of the Council of Ministers. His political career is still ongoing to this day. However, Berlusconi was no different than all other politicians, and the prosecutors of Mani Pulite were starting to bring that to the surface. During his first month in office, many members of his entourage, including his brother Paolo, started being accused of corruption or misappropriation of corporate funds for political purposes. Berlusconi couldn't pretend that nothing happened and wanted to stop these terrible accusations. After all, he was the president of the Council of Ministers. He wanted to have a say on who got prosecuted. So, on July 14, 1994, he passed a decree that his critics will call Decreto Salvaladri, thief-saving decree. It was going to put an end to Manipulite. All the politicians or businessmen waiting for trial would be freed. 
thousands of accused of corruption could be released, including his brother, and prosecutors could not issue arrest warrants for almost all fraud crimes. Unfortunately for Berlusconi, public opinion was so furious and indignant that he was forced to abolish the decree. A few months after, the prosecutors of Manipulite announced that Berlusconi would have to appear before them for questioning on bribery charges. This is what it stands for. To sum up, Italy has always been considered a krugtocracy, and clean hands certainly contributed to this view. It was the first time that the world and Italians themselves saw the real face of their ruling class. Clean hands is a twine of many small stories, some so surreal that they almost seem fabricated. And no one could have ever imagined that in the end, it would become a watershed for Italian history, so much so that from that moment onwards, we would speak of a second republic. And the man who became the symbol of the second republic and of Italy in general, Silvio Berlusconi, began his still ongoing political career thanks to clean hands. Ironic how a crook used the scandal of crooks, isn't it? This was Clean Hands, Italy, the first episode of Crooktocracy, a series about corruption scandals from all over the world. Let us know your comments and opinions on all our social media accounts. I'm Chiara, thank you for listening, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and stay tuned for the next episode about Brazil. Alla prossima, ciao! The music for this episode has been produced by Stone Ocean. This episode has been produced and recorded by Chiara Vilta. Edited by Chiara Vilta and Jonathan V. J. Rotna. Audio technician, Sharar Abdullah.